2: To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit, the newest and most reliable state-of-the-art time-traveling transportation service, is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Odyssey.
3: Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 15 of the podcast. This week, I had a really fun and interesting chat with Dr. Brooke Holmes, the Robert F. Goheen Professor in the Humanities and Professor of Classics at Princeton University. Her areas of specialization encompass ancient Greek medicine and life science, ancient philosophy, Greek literature, especially Homer and tragedy, Lucretius, reception studies, literary theory, medical humanities and bioethics, environmental humanities, gender and sexuality studies, and 20th century French philosophy." Together, we dove headfirst into the origins of medical ethics and how it impacts our approach to the COVID-19 pandemic, had an honest conversation about the experience of being a woman in the classics, and discussed Dr. Holmes' approach to classics as a form of world-building. It was a real joy to be able to speak with such an accomplished scholar who not only excels in her profession, but also has a real passion for mentoring young academics and building a supportive community of the classics, both within and outside the field. This conversation could have gone on far longer, but alas, all good things must come to an end. And with that, enjoy the episode, and I will speak to you all next time. Thank you for joining me today. I know it's Friday and it's been busy, um, so I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, I want to jump right in and ask you a little bit about how you got into classics. Um, I'm sure there's uh, it, it, for for most people I've found who, who've been on the podcast, it's a it's always a really fun and entertaining story. Uh, just because there's no right way to get into the field, so.
4: Absolutely, and I think in my case it's um, a particularly circuitous route. Um, So I came to, I went to um, college at Columbia, and uh, I had wanted to work for the State Department. I had done debate in high school. I was going to do Russian. I had some French from high school, and and then I was in the core, and I started doing literature humanities, and I just, you know, I decided I wanted to do literature. I fell in love with literature, and. But I decided I didn't want to do Russian literature. I wanted to do comparative literature. And I decided this um, towards the end, I guess, of my first year. And the COMPLIT program at um, Columbia had pretty tough prerequisites. So you had to have, I think, two years of two languages. And so I was doing the Russian, and I didn't want to keep doing French, I just—I don't know. I I guess I could have. It would have looked really different. And I found intensive Greek as something I could do two years in one. It was the only language program that I thought I could get the prerequisites for complete in time. So that was the reason I signed up for ancient Greek. And I did Hanson and Quinn. I uh, did—you know—we call it Turbo Greek at Princeton. Um, But at Columbia, you actually can do intensive intermediate Greek as well. So you can do a two-year sequence in one year. So that's what I did. But um, I actually. Continued to do Complet, um, was doing Russian and Greek, traveled in the former Soviet Union after I finished at Columbia, and then went to grad school in Complet. Um, and meanwhile, I had realized that I would probably keep doing classics, um, or I thought that if I wanted to do, if I didn't want to do Russian and Greek as a comparative thing, I should pick up Latin. Um, so I taught myself Latin while working at the Ministry of the Interior in Estonia on an internship well, I guess that was right. It was after, after Columbia. So I, I got to, um, Princeton and I had kind of this, a little bit of Latin, a little bit of Greek, and then realized that I wanted to, to focus on ancient stuff. But all my degrees are in comparative literature. At one point, um, I went to Paris to do um, a dewa which is kind of like a master's in Etude Crack, because I wanted to stay in comparative literature. And I think I'm really a comparatist at heart. So I don't really identify as a classicist or think of myself as a classicist till it was time to go on the job market. Um, and the process to getting tenure was in a way, I think my experience of the field um, and and sort of what it meant to, to professionalize. But I've always felt like a real outsider in classics because of the way I came to it. And so I've always been interested in the kinds of conventions of the discipline, um, like seeing it almost anthropologically sometimes.
3: Yeah, I think that's really amazing. Um, when I was in school, I took some ancient Greek just to graduate. Uh, I did not have the courage to start Latin, which Because I transferred over some AP French credit, I didn't have to take it. So I got very lucky and I just ended up taking a semester or two of uh, ancient Greek in school. Um, But that's really, really cool. That's one of the more unique paths that uh, I think I've heard. um, For sure, for sure. Uh, And then so once you kind of found your way into classics, how did you pick your areas of interest? Um, There's there when I was reading up on them, they were really, I found that they were really wide, um, a wide variety of them. Um, I think I saw some some medicine sprinkled in there. Uh, of course, reception studies are a, a, a huge part of the field. Uh, and then I think I saw some gender and sexuality studies in there as well.
4: Yeah, I, I had a kind of fateful um, fall term in my second year of graduate school. And I took... Um, from a Zeitlin, uh, Zeitlin tragedy class, I was taking Gayatri Spivak's class on post-structuralism at Columbia. I had studied with um, Gayatri Spivek as an undergraduate. And then I took uh, um, Heinrich Wunschdaten was teaching ancient medicine. And so in that turn, it sort of all came together. I became obsessed with symptoms. And I became obsessed with um, the symptom in at a kind of moment of of the limits of what was the the kind of end of the linguistic turn. And so I was imagining ways in which we, you know, we would talk about, oh, the body speaks, but I was interested in how signifying practices happen in bodies that aren't aren't the same as language, um, that uh, manifest forms of meaning that aren't tied to human um, meaning making, so to speak. So I really, that was a key moment for me. And that's how my dissertation research eventually started to develop around the figure of the symptom and uh, became the basis of, of my first book. Um, the book, which is about um, the idea of the physical body, by which I mean a body that has a nature, of fusis, and how that concept comes to take shape in fifth century medical writing. And I was particularly interested in how the um, space from which symptoms were imagined to emerge changes from a demonic space, a space of gods um, who may intervene um, in your sort of intentionality uh, in good and bad ways, how that, that space of, of um, the symptom changes to be the inside of the body. And that the notion of the physical body first starts to take shape around this kind of non-conscious interior that's not accessible to consciousness or intentionality, but has these forces within it that are associated with the humors or whatever elemental stuff. And so when things go wrong, all of a sudden they surfaces as pain. And so the book that I wrote that came out of the dissertation turned on this idea of imagining the symptom as a mechanism for um, a site of interpretation that could invite people to imagine new worldviews. And so it was an attempt to to really think about how another worldview around suffering and culpability and ethics was emerging in in relationship to this um, new way of reading symptoms. And so that's why the first book was very invested in in the concept of of the body. and I guess that, that it to, when I look at my research interests, I know, you know, often people think, well, you're sort of all over the place. And, and I really see my, my work as guided by a, a set of questions around the history of concepts and the concepts that are so embedded in the ways that we make sense of the world, our ontology, we might say, that we almost don't think of them as having histories or we don't think of, of them being parts of, of the mental furniture that could be removed and that humans could imagine things otherwise. Or we imagine, you know, there's the old paradigms of, well, yeah, people could think mythically, but we think of those mythic forms of thought as just not having reason. I mean, that still persists. And I was really interested in um, other forms of world making um, in response to symptoms, in response to now I'm doing this course on nature, where these are really robust forms of world making that can help us provincialize or, or localize a way of thinking that's organized around concepts like body or nature or matter. So I'm really interested in the long history of the physical body, the long history of concepts of nature, the long history of materialism um, from a philosophical point of view, but from a philosophical point of view that these are problems that are ethical problems or political problems are problems that never get solved. Um, they're sites of continued contestation and that's why I continue to be interested in literary texts and um, artworks and things that continue to, to work with the kinds of problems generated by these concepts over many, many centuries.
3: That's really cool. Um, I don't think I've ever had a a professor approach things that way, so I would find it really interesting to to sit in on a class and and see how you approach it. Um, So I have to ask, just because it the 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 thought popped into my mind, and it's it's kind of stupid, but as someone who kind of studies concepts, but also I'm assuming you've had to read a lot on actual just how they how the ancients studied and conceived of medicine in their own time. Uh, do you find yourself at any point if something's going on or if some something's going on with someone you know, instead of going to WebMD, can you just say, oh, let me try to diagnose this like an ancient. OK, what are your <laughs> symptoms? Just just tell me, you know, without any any of the modern stuff.
4: Yeah, it's funny because sometimes I joke. I mean, I do have a lot of pre-med students in, in my classes and, and my biological medical knowledge is very limited. I mean, sometimes you get people who study ancient medicine who are trained physicians and, you know, particularly the anatomy um, and that's not me. I don't have a, a medical background, although I did do work um, in, bio, in modern bioethics, which which I could talk about. But um, yeah, so especially when I first started, I mean, the logic of the, the kind of humoral body is fascinating, you know, and it would be, you know, there's a lot of, um, I mean, it's not so, I think it's not so different. Like, you know, did I eat too much and I didn't exercise enough to to burn it off? Or, you know, did I have too much of one acidic thing and that's sort of setting me off? I mean, there's, there's a real anxiety around fluidity and kind of the, the liquid body that I find uh, interesting that like imagining things are going wrong because you're somehow... Not holding on to the form of the body. I mean, it's quite. It's it's Aristotelian, but it's also very Hippocratic. I mean, it's very embedded in the the ancient notion of the body.
3: And how has if 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 it has at all the pandemic that we are currently living in uh, has that sort of influenced or changed the way you sort of think about uh, medicine, ancient medicine? I
4: mean, it it just reminds me. I mean, so I guess I'm interested in the ways in which ethical problems around disease and responsibility for disease in Greek and Roman medical texts um, are resonant with problems that we have around these questions. I'm very interested in the question of blame. And when things go wrong, we need to find people to be held responsible for that. And one of the ways that, you know, we used to talk about the story of um, a kind of conventional way of talking about the rise of Greek medicine is, okay, there's no gods and now we're going to secularize it as if we could move to... A world of science where you know it's just the facts like just the science no politics no ethics and obviously in the midst of the pandemic this is abundantly true that there is no science in a vacuum science is you know politicized we're obsessed with questions of morality and individual agency and all of this becomes more and more evident but this is something that i could see in the greek text that i was incredibly interested in the formation of greek medicine not just as a site for you know new diagnoses of disease but the production of like a new person a new subject and that subject is in a way produced because you have this body that's responsible for making you sick or things within it and we have texts we have a great text that i like called on the techniques and the body and the opacity of the body the fact you can't see inside the body it's these caverns and things go wrong and it's a symptom always comes too late um, the way they theorize disease is a lot like the way we, we I think in our imaginary, we think of cancer, like the symptoms come and it's stage four and it's too late, like because the body is sort of a, a hidden space that may betray you. So the body is, is at fault, but the body is a material object. It's an object. It's not human. And so it doesn't absorb blame very easily. And so what you start to see happening is the formation of the person whose body it is who comes to be held responsible for taking care of it. And this is where you start to see the, the creation of a new kind of ethical subject. This ethical subject is being formed in late fifth century Athens as male um, and as, as free. And so there's a lot of anxiety about um, enslavement and about femininity as the conditions in which you don't want to be in um, as, as a citizen uh, and that would imperil your sense of control over yourself, your autarky. And so the body is... Um, a way of imagining the femininity or the the um, passivity, the lack of agency associated with enslavement within yourself. So you start to see why the body becomes part of the imaginary of these of these cultures in a negative way because it's the thing that has to be controlled. So medicine posits itself as a site of control. Philosophy comes along and says, "Hey, you can control the body, but you really got to control the soul." Why is this interesting? So for the pandemic, um, a couple things. The pandemic is a site where we're having a lot of blame and people want to hold people responsible for things that are going wrong, whether, you know, if, if you get COVID, it's your own fault or, you know, the people who are holding up structures, you know, are being held responsible. And in many cases they are, but like, I think uh, what we're really looking at is a structural breakdown in the, in the political system, in our public health system, because of a lack of resources, it's not to say there aren't people who should you know act differently or so on and so forth. But in the face of like massive inability to sort of diagnose these structural problems and address them, you see again the ways in which you know we problematize people's, you know, individuals for becoming sick or trying to find sites of blame. And and that's something that's um I think not just in the pandemic, but kind of anywhere because you know, American society is very much focused on individual agency and, you know, you're responsible to be thin and healthy and pretty and all of these things. And if you're not, it's a moral failing. And if you, you know, fall ill, you have comorbidities, you're poor, it must be your fault. This is deeply built into the kind of American ethos in really problematic ways. And you can see similar things going on in um, the Greek period when the body emerges. So when you have a system like this, they don't have a very good way of talking about contagion. Because contagion, I mean, there are a lot of different reasons. One would be it looks sort of religious, but really, uh, it's also that they can't handle it very well, because they're used to dealing with bodies. Um, and, and they also want to hold people responsible. So Galen, for example, doesn't really have I mean, he's working later than the Hippocratic writers, but he doesn't have a theory of contagion, really, because he's like, okay, you have 10 people in a crowded theater, and it's really hot. They're open air theaters and two people get heat stroke. Well, the heat didn't cause it because not everybody got sick. It must be those two people. There must be something wrong with their bodies. There must be a pre-existing condition. And then he wants to moralize that pre-existing condition as the real cause of, of why people fell ill. And so I think this kind of dynamic around, you know, let's try to find things that aren't just the randomness. Um, And then when we do find them, let's not fault structural reasons, or let's not look at structural racism or you know poverty. Let's try to moralize it. These are dynamics we're seeing around the pandemic now that, to me, are echoed by what we see in the um, in the ancient writers. The last thing I'll say uh, is that when I I was teaching my medicine class last spring, we talk a lot about power and knowledge and physicians and patients and. I do talk a lot about the patient perspective is lost in a lot of Hippocratic texts, the um, physicians and and people writing these texts are obsessed with control and technique and control of the body. It was really difficult in a way to be teaching this in New York in March when we were really in crisis and, and we were a community in crisis and frontline healthcare workers, doctors, nurses were not only exhausted and putting themselves at risk, but I think, experiencing a kind of moral crisis because they couldn't treat people they didn't know they were they were in the face of not knowing what this new disease was how to save people and that sense of impotence which is something that i think the medical texts are constantly trying to find agency for techne and power and, and we're, we we want to believe biomedicine can save us and watching you know doctors caught in that the limits of medicine in that moment and teaching it was really transformative for how I was thinking about what's sometimes called the moral injury that we, we impose on doctors when we put them in systems and hold them responsible for things they can't control.
3: Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like. I've, I've been in Chicago the whole time throughout the pandemic, um, but my uh, my sister lives in New York. So we would hear snippets of what was going on early on. So it was just really it was really tough to hear. So I could only imagine. But I'm, I'm glad you brought up this sort of idea of ethics in, in medicine. Uh, we it's, it's something that's every medical student has to take like a medical ethics course uh, at some point. And I think everyone in nursing does as well. I don't remember uh, the specifics, but I have had friends in, in the medical uh, profession kind of running with that medical ethics theme. It, it seems like it seems like anyone who studied ancient medicine and ancient philosophy would also be, in terms of just the practical applicability in today's society, it seems like that would be a really good fit. So it, it, you could almost teach medical ethics yourself, even if it's not strictly a, a, an ancient course. Is there a lot of crossover there with, with the, the modern way we teach sort of medical ethics and, um, you know, what, is, what does it mean to take the Hippocratic Oath? then versus now? Mm -hmm. Um, Is there any crossover there or am I reaching?
4: No, it's a really hard question because so I had I I mentioned I had this New Directions Fellowship about four years ago from Mellon. And part of it was to train more systematically in the history of science and medicine. Um, And then part of it was I wanted to do bioethics. I wanted to see what this field was like. Um, And it is a niche field in medical schools. It's often taught you know, in a kind of legal way um, and in a quite narrowly conceived way as a field, it really comes into being after World War II. And I went to NYU at the time. They were one of the few programs that had their bioethics in the um, general, um, you know, kind of humanities and social sciences where it was closely affiliated with their philosophy department. And I think it since moved to the School of Public Health. Um, but I wanted a more philosophical approach. But I was asking this question, like, how does one train to be like a bioethicist? And what I learned was um, a couple things. I mean, we did, I, I have some training in analytical philosophy just because I work on ancient, ancient philosophical texts and, and the analytic approach tends to be predominant because so I have a lot of training in continental philosophy as well. Um, And one thing, you know, I I found real limits to the way that analytic philosophy was coming up with these problems in bioethics. I think that I resisted some of the notions of the subject and the kind of rational subject. I thought there was like a lingering sort of Platonism um, around the idea of what it means to be a kind of rational agent. I mean, I got most interested when we were looking at quandaries of agency and uh, what is it called? There's a name for it uh, when it's not compromise agency, but when you have patients making decisions who may not be completely, their mental health may be impaired or they may be temporarily impaired. And so um, it's like, there are issues around consent who, you know, if you're a person who is mentally ill and you're medicated, like, are you your true self when you're medicated? I mean, these are questions that are incredibly interesting to me. Um, so I hit, I, I think the process of doing this training, and I just took a couple courses, so I didn't do the whole master's was that I thought bioethics is a really weird field because if we're thinking about the ethics of being in bodies, whether, you know, within medicine or not, it it helped me realize like we are all like, there's, there's no field you can train in to answer those questions. Like medical humanities is an expansive way of thinking about it. Disability studies has become important for focalizing questions, not from the physician's point of view or, you know, who gets the organ transfer, but like, what does it mean to be in a medical system as a person with a disability and, a, and an ableist system? Um, so there's a lot of different sites. And in fact, there's a lot of tension, I would say in medical humanities, as it expands between different fields, between medical ethics, as it's been traditionally taught medical humanities, as an appendage in medical schools, disability studies. And so a couple things that I learned was, you know, there's like this narrow field and then there's this really big field. And actually it, it's not just a question of my own expertise in ancient medicine, which I do teach as a kind of ethics class. I just actually, you know, I have a student just wrote to me and we were talking about this and it's really, it's, it's a history class, but it's an, it counts as an ethical and moral thought class because we're essentially saying what I say to my students is, you know, we could go to Greek medicine as the site of, you know, the beginning of clinical medicine or the the oath. So people would think, oh, the oath is the site for imagining deontology, like how one should be a doctor. So bioethics traditionally conceived and it's been used in that way. It was used in Roe versus Wade actually. But I say, I'm not doing either of those things. Like I wanna think about the whole complex of the problem that in a medicine of the physical body, you have a fundamental paradox. And that fundamental paradox is that the patient is an object and a subject. The patient is a body and they don't understand their bodies intuitively. Like, I don't understand my whole body. If I get sick, you know, I may not know why, I may not be able to treat it. Like the existence of medicine is a response to the paradox that we don't, we're alienated at some basic level from our bodies. But I'm also a person, I'm also an agent. I also don't wanna be treated like an object. And so that paradox is, not, it's a problem we're never going to solve as long as we have a medicine of the body. And so I teach it really as an ethics class, as working through problems that we are still with us through texts that are, in ways, formative of of the terms and vocabularies that continue to be used in within this long tradition from the Hippocratics to Galen, and then you know through the Arabic tradition um, and the Syriac and. Into the medical schools in the Latin West as well as eastward to India I means hugely diasporic Greek medicine. But so part of it is the genealogy of this tradition in a really rich sense and not a genetic sense, but in a sense of, you know, this is a long tradition that's still informing ways medicine is done, but also as a site that's different from today. So it's the differences are places where we can get an angle out, get out of our own myopia and see the world we inhabit a little bit differently. Um, So I see the kind of ethical project in those terms. The last thing I'll say that is amazing is that you can actually do medical ethics um, like as volunteer work. And and so one exciting thing after I took the course at NYU is I started working with Joe Finns, who's the head bioethicist at Well Cornell. Um, And we have a kind of project that's been put on hold for various reasons um, around pain and the, but he had invited me to take to, to participate in some of the ethics committee meetings um, at Well Cornell. And so I was doing that for a while until I got completely overwhelmed again. And that was amazing for me because I realized that that was the kind of bioethics in practical terms that I was looking for when I went to NYU. You've got a room full of 60, 70 people With a case that they need to, you know, they're puzzling through. Maybe there's a policy change, but really they're just trying to what were the best practices and how would we do it going forward? You've got psychologists, internists, nurses, chaplains, ethicists, really interdisciplinary work. And to me, that was the moment when I was like, this is the kind of bioethics that I want to do and I want to inform the work I do in the university
3: just a sort of stray observation, um, because I enjoyed so much that last part. So I actually have, uh, five doctors in my family. Um, so a lot of doctors and one of them is my brother-in-law. He, um, I think he does internal medicine down in Tulsa. And I, I remember I was talking to him just about, I, I had an accident and I hurt my back when I was a sophomore in college mm-hmm. and long story short, I was on like a billion meds and they just couldn't figure out how to sort of manage my pain. And yeah. so I felt like, you know, sort of an object as you talked about where I was being poked and prodded and okay, well, if this doesn't work, let's just throw all this at you and try it. And, um, you know, that gets really sort of annoying and tiring. Cause you're like, okay, I'm tired of you just trying things like I'm your experiment. Can you just, if you don't know what to do, just tell me and I'll find someone. And, I got into a conversation with my brother-in-law after the whole thing had been resolved. And he said something that I've never forgotten to this day, which is as doctors, we are trained to treat acute pain. So if you come in and you say, I hurt, we're going to give you meds. We're going to try things that take away that pain. But what we are not trained in is treating chronic pain, which is why you see the same people coming back weeks later. Hey, this hurts again. And that's how people get addicted to drugs because they're not treating the underlying causes. So mm-hmm. just sort of that observation came back to me and I thought wow this is this kind of goes hand in hand with the applicability part and just how how our systems are set up what we're doing what we're looking for but also just the the ethics part of it as well which is obviously you want to be good people and you want to stop people from hurting that's great that's admirable but if it's getting people hooked onto some really strong drugs, you know, how ethical is it to just keep giving drugs to people if they just keep coming back and and not sitting down and um, trying to actually address that. So uh, that's, uh, it it seems like I think a lot of doctors these days and in in medical schools, yes, I think they should really sort of go for a, a different, more holistic approach to pain sort of I think it would be kind of like the one you're talking about and the one that you're, you, you have a hand in. Um, I think that might lead to some better outcomes long-term, but that's, that's, that's purely speculative at this point. Um, but that's just something that came to mind. Uh, very, very powerful stuff.
4: Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a, a huge question. Can I just respond really quickly? Yeah, because go I ahead. Go that's ahead. Where I, I've thought more about it. I think since I wrote the book, which is the practice of medicine within what Vivian Nutton calls in the antiquity, the kind of medical marketplace, but of course capitalism is is really informed, you know, in medical insurance, the medical system today. And so that's both, you know, a side of analogy. And sometimes you can think about um, what that does to kind of the power of the physician and the, the patient as a consumer. But, but I think it's just so amplified in the current context where we're objectified as patients, not just as bodies that are scientific objects, but as billing objects. And so, that's where I think, you know, the system of, of extracting as much money as possible from healthcare, particularly is going to make acute pain, you know, a kind or chronic pain a problem because the full system of support, whether that means, you know, long term care or longer term diagnosis or a network of inter, you know, interlinking therapeutic responses, looking at mental health, looking at, you know, poverty, looking at job stressors, looking at, you know, diet, like all these things just take time. And then they're not valued in a way because they're so expensive if we really put the time into the form of care that's needed. And I think that's where, again, like you mentioned the pandemic. I mean, I was seeing one thing that is so evident in this pandemic is caregiving work is so devalued in this country. It is just devalued. And the the country runs on extracting labor from caregivers who are predominantly women who are predominantly women of color. And, you know, it's the thing that keeps the machine going, but it's, you know, not rewarded. It's not recognized. Um, And the authority of the physician is, is sort of what we hold up because that's that individual you know, person who can come in and do the fancy surgery or come in and, and it treat your acute pain, but we erase all of the caregiving that's required for much more complex problems. And I think in antiquity, you know, sometimes the focus on learned medicine means we don't acknowledge all the forms of caregiving and, and that kind of work that's going on and isn't surfacing in our texts. And the obsession of the patient as the kind of autarchic individual is mirrored by the physician as like the autarchic individual, the physician is I've argued disembodied in these texts. He's a mind, you know, he's a mind who can argue his case and treat your pain and be successful, but who doesn't want to be vulnerable. Um, and I think that, that does damage to patients. And, and as I was saying, with the pandemic, it's do, does damage to doctors. They huge rates of burnout, huge rates of suicide. And so it's, it's a problem that's specific to kind of late capitalism, but I think it's interesting to read through a lot of the ancient medical texts because there are resonant moments around this male individualism, the male citizen, the obsession with with freedom and not enslavement that is feminized. All of that is, is very resonant.
3: Yeah. And to bring in sort of the idea that they're here to, especially with these insurance companies in this country, trying to extract every last cent from the people who, who really need help. So going to the hospital, to the doctor's office is kind of just a nightmare, no matter how you slice it for pretty much everyone. But it seems like if you get into that sort of aspect of you're, you're being built, okay, then we talk about the system, the infrastructure we have, what are we going to do about that? It seems like it, it really has these tendrils that kind of expand into so many other uh, areas of study, so many different careers and professions. I mean, if you don't plan on going into anything like the ancient studies, but you want to be a politician, I'm sure you're going to study sort of uh, history of ancient political thought leading up to through uh, 20th century uh, political thought. And so, this idea of maybe re- requiring everyone in other career fields that will somehow touch on our massive healthcare system uh, does it seem reasonable that everyone should be required to have some sort of medical humanities course? So, or even if it's not required, is this an aspect that we could? as a field really talk up and say, hey, did you know that this ancient stuff relates to whatever your career is? So this is a reason you should either take some classes in classics, get the major, uh, even if you don't plan to go into the field. Uh, Because when we talk about this sort of limited accessibility and limited knowledge of us as a field, it's I usually find because we don't do a very good job of selling ourselves on the practical applicability of, hey, don't just take this because you need the credit because you literally just need to graduate. Um, you should take this and see it as an opportunity to don't be scared to get a background in classics because it'll make you more well-rounded for X, Y, Z, whatever. Um, but I'm just wondering if the, the medical humanities part should be something we actively talk about more.
4: Yeah, I mean, it certainly, when I went on the job market, you know, 15 years ago, it was not an asset to be doing ancient medicine. I mean, I did tragedy and I got you know, the jobs I've gotten in my life uh, at at that level were pretending only, I only did tragedy because ancient medicine was seen as a very marginal field and that things have changed a lot. Medical humanities are boom industry and, and it's good. I do think, um, I mean, it's good and bad. It's bad in the sense that, you know, within the kind of crushing resources of the university, the instrumentalization of the humanities, if they're not really given the space and the respect they need can become, you know, appendages of the kind of technocratic complex for sure. But I do think that on the whole, yeah, like everybody should be doing humanities courses. I think this is a moment where I would, you know, want to say the pandemic, climate change, you know, political crisis, like humanists you know, in the broad sense, I mean, need to step up and and think, you know, we need to to change the kinds of vocabularies that we are giving our students and our publics to work through complicated problems so that we can collectively deliberate on the solutions that we need to complex problems um, and not revert to, you know, easy blame or, um, and you know, be effective in in critiques when critiques are, are valid. I think the challenge that I've really faced in coming and working on ancient medicine and and thinking about the field and this links to a lot of the work i've done um, kind of around um like art exhibitions i've done projects i've run in relationship to the field is that so hippocratic texts galenic texts i mean these are the foundations of traditions that uh are in place for millennia through you know written texts that are handed down you know commentaries and so on and so forth um so there are reasons to think about this as part of what we call western medicine but i since i the, my first book i've become really much more critical and thoughtful i think about how we position classics as relevant to the present um, and saying you know this is the birthplace of medicine or you know this is like somehow about western medicine or the genealogy of western philosophy um and because I think that that is very problematic in terms of the kinds of ways it positions the field as, you know, Eurocentric for one thing, um, as really more and more like allied with whiteness. And and, and it misrepresents what actually this rich tradition is when we're imagining what Greek medicine is as a kind of body of text. So I guess what I would say there is you have these texts which do emerge um, in fifth century Greece uh, and start to constitute a canon, which is handed down, read, commented on and, and materially transmits this, this information becomes sites for new communities of people to study. And so the textual tradition I think helps us understand this kind of materiality of reception. We see it in the Babylonian tradition where you have millennia of cuneiform texts around medicine and there's the formation of a particular medical tradition around written texts that then also attract philosophical attention, you know, literary attention and so on and so forth. So that's what we're seeing in the quote unquote, in the, in the traditions that descend from, from ancient Greece and Rome. It's not like it's in our DNA, you know, us Europeans or Westerners or white people or whatever, it's this tradition, which is, which is handed down. And part of what that does is it helps you understand, you know, for one thing I emphasized the Greco-Arabic translation movement in the ninth century in Baghdad, hugely important. And if you focus on medicine and science and classics, you get a really different picture than if you're just doing literature or you're doing Latin literature. The Latin West does not matter that much to the transmission of medicine and science and philosophy. And if we recognize that, like every classics department should be doing Arabic, should be thinking about the Greco-Arabic, should be thinking about Syriac, should be thinking about... Um, Poly, I mean, so already you have a sense in which the story has elided um, a really important part of this kind of diasporic translation movement that needs to be taken on board, and I think is really important when you talk to students about, you know, what is this tradition that we're all sort of working with? Well, yes, there's biomedicine. If you're pre-med, you're being educated in a system influenced by this. But even culturally, it's so diffuse that it's what Susan Buckmore talks about a kind of communist inheritance of the past. I mean, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about this tradition. It's so diffuse and diasporic and it's been taken up by so many different communities that we really, I think, need to imagine it as available to us in the present, making these connections and finding value in it rather than assuming that value is just given to us as by a tradition, which may or may not be ours.
3: Yeah, I think those are all really, really good points, and I think I would have found it really interesting to have my classics department say, "Hey, uh, we're going to introduce some elements of, you know, Arabic tradition over here. Let's mix it up a little bit." Um, unfortunately, that's just not what we do. So, um, but I would have, I, I would find that very interesting. So now I want to take a, a small step back, j- just because of the fact that sitting here thinking about all these old. Greek men, certainly all men, uh, practicing. You don't really hear. You don't have female doctors out here um, saving people. So, just from your perspective, you know, what is it like being a woman in classics, studying ancient medicine, where you are uh, essentially reading all these texts just by by ancient men? And one thing that I think all women can can sort of speak to is, I think we hate it when men try to diagnose women's problems when we all know men don't really know shit about women's problems so is it is it just really interesting to be a woman studying ancient medicine reading all these things that uh some some men have have written about oh this woman came to me today and I think I know what's wrong with her really do you I mean it's a great it's a great question um and you know you mentioned
4: earlier that i that i work in gender and sexuality and i've always seen my work in ancient medicine as informed by trying to imagine at a really broad philosophical scale the feminization of the body the feminization of, of vulnerability the ways in which feminization is ways of is a form of othering racial othering even in antiquity as well and the cross and, and sexuality and so forms, ways in which normativity is, social norms get taken up through medicine as a site that naturalizes forms of oppression. And so these have always been kind of large scale issues, as well as these questions of, you know, knowledge production at the local level, like these medical writers, men encountering women. There'd been some really amazing work done um, by pioneering feminist scholars, Anne Hansen and Helen King and Aline Roussel and um, Véronique Dassen, there was a lot of important work done in the 90s, um, Leslie Dean Jones, around um, sex and gender in medicine. And in fact, medicine kind of first came up in classics as a site for doing sex and gender stuff. Um, and so there was a lot of interesting work that when I came in to the field on questions of, say, female voices, were there female physicians, like, are there? Is there a midwife? Um, these kinds of questions that continue to be really interesting to me, and I continue to work with students on them, and I think Um, particularly around the naturalization and normativity around say virginity and and serenity is an interesting point where you're seeing the focalization through the society, through kind of biological thinking, through imagining what might be healthy for the woman, but it's sort of all overlaid with the instrumentalization of female bodies for reproduction. I mean, that's always what it is. So I think that the best way to kind of answer your question is like over the years, I didn't set out to become an expert in ancient medicine. I'm fascinated by the text. I'm fascinated by the philosophical questions. Um, and my the, my work is really, you know, in, in dialogue with increasingly, I think, you know, work in biopolitics or, or critical theory or ge- sex and gender studies, but they're really arcane texts. And I've been, you know, it's difficult to work in communities where there's not even a basic understanding of sex and gender and, and gender and sexuality theory and things like that. And so, I think a lot of times a kind of feminist perspective on these texts, which is just to say a way that acknowledges their deep investment in sex and gender and normativity, if that's absent and you're just sitting around talking about technicalities, right. um, It's just, it's made me look to other communities where I feel like I can be involved in the kind of knowledge-making that, that is cognizant of questions of, of sex and gender and, and racial difference and, and, um, human flourishing, that's fully attentive to that rather than being done in a kind of isolation. So I think, you know, the simple answer to your question is, yeah, like classics is still like a pretty conservative field and it's pretty sexist. And if you do really arcane work, um, you know, if you say Aristotle's a misogynist, like people be like, oh my God, no, like he's not a misogynist. And, and, you know, these are just some, some isolated examples where he says, you know, women are deformed men. And it's like, it I don't understand this position. Like his whole metaphysics is based on the devaluation of the feminine and matter. If you can't take that on board and still go forward, what are you going to do? But I think the paradox then becomes, if you are a woman who's devoted a lot of your life and attention to studying this work, is it a a form of self-hatred? is it a form of like, why would I study this guy who's such a misogynist, you know? And I think that is a complicated question for someone like Sarah Brill in her new book, I think handles this really brilliantly around these questions. Like, what does it mean to engage with this work? And it has to be in order to think the present differently, as far as I'm concerned, that it really is where just doing historical work on these texts, like I did it, I've done it, I believe in deep historical work, because I believe it gets us out of the myopia of the present, but it can never be an end in itself, because at least for me, it's not I want to spend my life that way. So I have a really strong commitment to the specificity of these texts because we don't want to, them to just tell us what we want to hear, whether good or bad, I want to find the complexity in them. So they're not just straight up misogynistic. Like we can understand like how these systems of thought, uh, where they hit problems, where they puzzle over, you know, like where they're trying to use, you know, thinking about body and mind to work through questions of the human experience that are powerful. Um, But they always, I think, increasingly, I feel like I'm invested in building communities of readers in classics, but really outside of classics, artists, I work a lot with artists, where, you know, these texts are not canonical, they're not classical in the sense they're just given, like they're sites for imagining the present differently.
3: And I think most people would notice it's not I mean, medicine is a its own sort of I would consider it separate just because obviously when you're doing medicine, it's going to have to be for everyone. So you can't just ignore women or women's voices. But I'm just noticing there is currently in the field. I mean, I, I know it's been changing and it's better, but for things like I mean, we have some. Uh, I would say pioneering women who've done translations uh, of, I mean, there's Emily Wilson who did The Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Um, there are several authors uh, like Natalie Haynes where she sort of reimagined um, uh, Euripides' Trojan women with her, her new book, um, A Thousand Ships. And as I look at the sort of reception that women like that get when they sort of take everything we have from these male sources and say, okay, well, I'm going to look at the female Uh, voices here because they did exist they just weren't covered the reactions go from this is great we really need to to see this to hear this to straight up no why would you do that you you can't do that this is terrible so obviously medicine is very different but I don't know like is is there ever going to be a way where I mean is is gender studies for like the ancient world is that going to keep growing and become bigger and bigger as more women decide, I'm going to just tackle this stuff that all these men do, like, fuck it, whatever, I'm just going to do it. Is it going to grow? Is it going to grow that field? Um, is it going to expand into some of these other um, sort of sub disciplines within the field? Or, you know, what kind of headwinds do you see as a as a woman in classics? Or do you not see anything changing? I
4: think it's definitely, it's definitely changing in that the number of students coming to this material who are explicitly interested in queer theory, gender and sexuality studies, reception has changed the field profoundly, um, that I do think just at the moment where you feel like it's done, this is a hopeless project, this is a sexist field, and it's not, you know, and it's, it's not, philosophically exciting. It's not interested in theorizing itself. It's that's a very frustrating aspect of classics. Just at that moment, then it does feel like there's a generation of women um, and queer scholars and and you know scholars who are just, you know, non-binary and and trying to think, okay, like what like what if we just started rebuilding this world from our own perspective Um, and a willingness to imagine new forms of scholarship and public work. And I mean, that was what I had sort of found my way to with my collaborations with artists and and doing exhibition work. And that's, you know, I think there are feedback loops with different communities that can be sustaining for the kind of work you need to do in classics to change the field, but that can be incredibly exhausting and tiring and depressing because it changes slowly. A lot of the work is invisible with the invisibilization of so much labor of women everywhere, um, you know, and particularly structural labor, and that's the labor that has to do. But I mean, like a, a, a lot of it is behind the scenes and then women's scholarship is often effaced not cited, you know, in the field, like we continue to reproduce this kind of, you know, the male scholars who are, who are loudest. And I think you get really depressed. So I'm kind of wandering here because it's Friday afternoon, but like every time I say I'm done with this field, I didn't choose to be in it. I came out of comparative literature. I've got a ton of people I talk to who I love talking to increasingly, like it's the artists I'm collaborating with are amazing, but you know, I'm just going to (laughs) leave And I love the material like the problem is this big book that I'm working on this sympathy book like I'm just I just, I love the material and I do want to finish this big book but I would love to have a community of people who are working on this material in ways that are exciting and resonant where it's people that I can talk to where we share a sense of what that you know, if you're talking about race or you're talking about gender or sexuality, like you're not doing identity politics. You don't lack humanist imagination. Like somehow you have to prove that you know what the data is in order to say something next. Even if, you know, the people who know what the data is can't think their way out of a paper bag, like that's fine. But like, you know, just when you're ready to give up, you think, oh, but I, I don't want to abandon the ancient material to the pedants. And, and I fought this hard and, you know, why give up now? So I guess what I would say is community is crucial collaboration is crucial there's a lot of talk about collaboration in the humanities and people imagine these big you know large-scale grants and you know that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about intellectual friendships i'm talking about generosity i'm talking about bonds of mentorship and and um, mutual aid within the academy which is about supporting not just marginalized identities i mean Which is necessary, but like combating this, the microaggressions every day of, of, of fighting a system that's decided like, you're not as smart as everyone else, you know, I mean, just that's very difficult. And then fighting to say, I'm as, you know, I'm intelligent because I work on these fields that you don't recognize as knowledge. I mean, now I'm getting into like, I do a lot of interdisciplinary work. And and one of the things I came to see, I ran the interdisciplinary doctoral program in the humanities at Princeton for four years. And my work is just, it's, you know, like you said, it looks like it's all over the place, because for me, it's all kind of unified, but I'm constantly using what I call different knowledge technologies or epistemic technologies. It's a commitment to perspectivalism. And what I learned about doing interdisciplinary work in the institution is there's a politics of knowledge, Like when Princeton's president says we're not going to let people concentrate in gender and sexuality studies because it's premature. Like, you know, I mean, I'm like, what is going on here? There is a valuation embedded in the structures of these institutions, you know, big endowments and, you know, old scale humanities that like don't want to change, but like the reporting resources and the most exciting forms of knowledge production continue to be marginalized. And so the people who are doing them continue to be Marginalized because they're starved of resources and they're treated as though they're not doing real scholarship, or you have to somehow go do real scholarship and then you'll be allowed to do gender and sexuality, or then you'll be allowed to do, um, you know, critical race theory or queer theory. So I think that there's a, a shift happening where I would hope we could get away from the assumption that, like, there's a canon of texts, and as long as you know these texts and you can read them in some kind of, you know, traditional philological way, that's sufficient to recognizing that we could have a community of scholars where people are pursuing their own interests in a way. And we appreciate all those perspectives and we value them all and that we all need to be committed to making the field accessible, not because we're like, just come into this, you know, hermetic white male, you know, country club, but like, let's think who this we is. And let's think about all of these perspectives as equally valuable.
3: Oh, for sure. For sure. And I mean, it's okay if you don't have anything it's a lot like a to say rant. about it. I have a lot to say. I don't know if that was even the best. Oh no, I, I, think, it's, it. I think it's. <laughs> I think it's. I think it's all very important. And and so just you know, as a young woman in classics, who for right now. After I graduated, I knew I didn't want to go right into grad school. I probably couldn't because of the language requirements. So uh, it gave me time to sort of go into the working world, get experience, really think about who I am, what I want, get a critical look at the field that I've devoted most of my educational life to so far. Um, and, And a lot of it seems daunting. A lot of people ask me all the time, oh, do you ever think you might want to go on? You could still try to go to grad school for classics, you know, study something you like and I say, truthfully, I I don't know. Um, You know, there's a lot to like. I love the material. I do. I'm not going to lie about that. But there's also a, a lot that sometimes can seem like such a barrier. So as someone who maybe at one point in my life wanted to sort of be sort of where you are now, do you have any advice for for any uh, young women in classics who are sort of uh, in my position, whether they're still in school or recently graduated? you know how did how did you do it? How did you persevere and make it to, to where you are when you've talked about you know hitting this wall of oh, you know maybe I should just get out maybe maybe I can just be okay with my experience that I've accrued and then just go into something else yeah
4: I think you, I think it's really important going in to be clear about what you want out of going to graduate school not and I say that not just in the sense of oh yeah there's no jobs there are still some jobs but it's more about being clear about your own what you know Like you already know a lot about antiquity and you know a lot about the world and thinking and A lot of times when you talk about oh you don't have the languages or you know we think about what you know people are less prepared for graduate school and classics it's not that they weren't doing anything they often have all these forms of knowledge that they've acquired through embodied experience through you know studying sociology or studying art history. That is what we need in classics right now in order to build the field and I think you know what happens when you go to graduate school and classics is there is this kind of, I mean, yes, you have to learn the languages in most programs now. I mean, I think there are ways of doing reception and there are ways of doing classics that you wouldn't need the languages. Um, but all of this is, is changing quickly. And so I always think of it as know what you want or, or think you want and, and you don't know everything, right. Cause you're not there yet. And so keep building in that, that loop for yourself where you're keeping front and center, what's valuable to you. Classics is a field that has valuation built into its name, and it has that kind of you know dull hitting of you like oh no this is classics this is classics and and the you know it will beat out of you your own sense of ownership of the material or the field in ways that I find pernicious. And I think that holding out your own relationship and your own conditions of valuing this material and continually revisiting them is something that's that's really crucial. I um, mean the other thing I would say is. So I'm really interested in institutions. I think a lot of power we focus on individuals. I mean, a lot of it is structure. And it's funny, I have a friend, she's a sculptor who runs the program of Visual Arts at Princeton. And she I, I like talking to her because she's she talks about institution building as like sculpture. And you know, it's some of it is bureaucratic and you could lose your life in it. But understanding how structures work allow you to be tactical within them and to change them sometimes and to move. And so I always tell my students, like, you know build the world you want to live in. And you can't do that alone. That's where collaboration is absolutely key. But it's about understanding, you know, yeah, we can burn it all down. And I, you know, I think classics as a field, you know, I don't know what its value is, but but I'm actually just much more interested in how do you do world building? How do you build, you know, new communities? And a lot of my own work has been focused on that question of how do you build a conversation in a workshop, in a seminar, in an exhibition? And I think that, I wish that we thought about the field that way, that we imagine that, you know, new scholars coming in saw this as a moment of co-creation and that we were all recognizing that that's we're at a moment of the discipline where I think that's its future. And in my optimistic moments, I think, you know, great. But then I say optimistic. The problem is know how institutions work. But to go back to what I started with, you are not the institution, you are not the field, you are not the discipline. The academy is a is a, like a monastery. It's like a it will eat you alive in terms of the way that it imagines who you're who you are, what your value is. It won't give you an outside to your life. And the difficult thing of doing institutional work is not to let the institution consume you. To maintain an outside, maintain intellectual friendships outside the institution. Where, you know, people in your community, people that you're talking to, and see that as really crucial to the kind of work you're doing. So that's a kind of feedback loop that I think is is really important.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I love I love how you termed that the world building, like thinking about classics as world building and, and opening up, being more inclusive. Uh, building better habits. I, I love that for many reasons, I would say too many to count. But one of them is one thing that I often talk about uh, when it comes to representations of the ancient world, building interest, trying to actively get more creative people interested in and to come to the field. Uh, one of the what I found most interesting recruiting grounds for that comes from the world of entertainment. And just because there's that mix of What do we like? We like stories. Where do stories come from? They come from mythology. Oh, that's ancient stuff. Uh, And so any kind of media we have today comes from that. It's it's a very long conveyor belt sort of. um, And a lot of people don't connect the importance of the classical world to media. And so what we have are popular films and TV shows where, yeah, sometimes we show sort of accurate things and sometimes we don't. And I found that they're really bad at sort of talking to each other as industries, as fields. Oh, we can help you. We can help you do a lot of things. Do you want to make really entertaining, engaging things that oh, hey, also happened to be historically accurate. Would that make somebody say, hey, I saw this movie because I love movies. I learned a really cool thing about the ancient world. Now I want to go study that. You know, there, there's not a process to sort of uh, build that up. And so there's so many different examples and I, I don't have time to go into all of them and I probably wouldn't be able to cover all of them anyway. So I won't try. But I I would say... There are certain things I know when, when we talk about reception studies, I think uh, one of the, the most studied uh, ancient figures, Homer, obviously uh, and, and studying and, and reading Homer has led to takeoffs of his, <laughs> of, of his epic poems. So we have things like the Brad Pitt, Troy, or the, the Netflix miniseries Troy, Fall of the City. Both are very in- interesting, I would say, but as, as we know, they don't represent everything perfectly some some better than others. Um, when it comes to sort of the, the stuff that you study, your fields, when you see uh, movies or TV shows that are, uh, or or even if they can be plays or or read them in books, but when we see how do we represent women in the ancient world in things that are supposed to be sort of historically accurate, but kind of not because, hey, entertainment value. I don't know. What, what do you think when you see some of these things and, mm-hmm. and as a scholar of gender studies, and you say, oh, well, you know, okay, they're not, there, there aren't many women in something like the big 300 movie, right? There's like one woman in there and then she's all on screen for all of five seconds. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, how do we change that? Um, because I think that would also help in terms of world building, expand the world beyond just men. Absolutely. Yeah.
4: And I think, you know, there's a way in which there's a kind of collusive relationship between mythology and, Hollywood and in, in whose voices it privileges, who's you know, going to be the star of, of an action movie and, and so on and so forth. Um, and so it's in a way you kind of get your entertainment value and then you get a kind of validation of gender stereotypes because, you know, that's just the way it was. Um, so I think that it's it is a challenge. Um, and I, I like I said, I know let me answer it in a couple ways if i could just respond uh, because i'm going to touch on the gender question we'll come back to it but um when you mentioned troy and i was thinking a long time ago um i used to teach when i would teach epic i would show them i would show my students troy and then brother where art thou and i loved that because they it helped them um see things about adaptation about what it meant to get at the spirit of a work or to respond to the work that's not just historical recreation and you know the absence of the gods from Troy. They really it helped them understand what work the gods were doing in the Iliad. Um, because when you just see the Iliad, you think, Oh, what are these gods doing here? And then you kind of see an attempt to sort of represent it without it, and they think, Oh, oh, I see, I see what's happening. And and Brother Art, though, I think is just a brilliant adaptation of like the spirit of the Odyssey. It's much more creative, but it also feels much more true. And so I think doing that kind of work can help students see that you can engage with the ancient world in a way that doesn't mean period costumes. It can mean getting at mythic structures and mythic structures are inherently malleable they're inherently made for recreation and that's what tragedy is in relationship to you know myth is it's constantly innovating it's constantly finding new perspectives it's constantly inverting power dynamics in order to vocalize the really core issues that mythology is about you know in family kinship violence sexual violence power Suffering, you know, helplessness. I mean, I love tragedy because it's about these human issues <laughs> that we don't have structures in our society to really get out with the same level of intensity. Um, and yet, built into them is that sense of perspectival malleability in a way that the epic, you know, recreation or the 400 promotes a version of the ancient world that I think, you know, I'm not that interested in. Um, but I said, you know, one thing I think about a lot. Um, because when you first did popular culture, like I do work with a lot of artists. And so I think a lot about, you know, um, the the kind of more experimental adaptations and I and theater and um, there too, I think you can do really interesting things with the, the open, you know, more classical adaptation versus like a really innovative um, or playful adaptation, which is inspired by the story, but may not even seem to be, you know, related to it in the same way. So I'm thinking, you know, some of the classical versions I've seen of Trojan women to mention Trojan women, you know, nobody knows what to do with the chorus. Um, they're technically great, but, you know, the kind of all the mourning is hard to pull off because we don't really have the, a way to translate it in terms of the registers and so on and so forth. Um, and then I think of someone like my uh, a collaborator I work with Isabel Lewis, who's engaged with played a symposium to reimagine performance. I mean, she she started in theater and dance and is inverting the whole notion of what it means to be on stage and what it means to be um, in a kind of open-ended dialogue with people around you to produce a conversation, philosophical conversation, but that's oriented around performance. And, you know, to me, that's like at the heart of what is going on in the fifth century in terms of, of mythic thought encountering philosophy, for example. But But I think too, you know, about, I realized the popular culture. I mean, I have, my son is seven, my daughter is four. And when we start, you know, when they were younger, I mean, when my son, you know, maybe a few years ago we would go hiking and I had to entertain him. And I started telling a myth, like that's what I had. Um, I, I, you know, I just not, don't have the energy to to make up stories. And that has been amazing to me um, because he loves them. I have to constantly, I'm constantly encountering, you know, the prevalence of rape within these stories, the prevalence of, of violence of all kinds, um, you know, even telling the myths of Heracles, like I would have to say, are we going to do the one where he tames the monsters? Are we going to do the one where he kills the monsters? Like I would worry about the kinds of structures of narrative that I was giving to him, you know? Um, but I would also, but he loved them because they're stories, you know, and, and he would start to make up his own myths. And so I could see that, the the malleability and I was thinking how can I give this to him as the good parts of of this inheritance what you were talking about as myth as a kind of element of storytelling without the bad parts by which I mean the ways in which so many myths do objectify women um do glorify violence um and then also you know increasingly I became worried I mean this was a kid like okay everybody thinks it's funny like I think it's funny. I taught, well, I taught him to say parthenogenesis at quite a young age, you know, and like, and and autodidact is his new favorite. He was talking about that. We were looking at some birds. He was like, those birds are autodidacts. I was like, yeah, they are. Um, But like, you know, the son of a classicist, like I'm also thinking about the double-edged weapon of like mythology as cultural capital. And, you know, I mean, I didn't come from, I came from a very middle-class background and and coming to Columbia, I was very acutely aware of classics as cultural capital. Or I think maybe I wasn't aware. I became aware of, of how it exercised power over me in that way. So I think about what I'm doing, giving him mythic vocabularies in a world where he goes to a public school in Washington Heights, you know, like it's, you know, I mean, how can that be a site for imagining with his friends rather than a marker of, of class difference, for example. So that's been a really, um, ongoing site of kind of real world thinking about popular culture.
3: Yeah. Oh, I heartily approve of of telling children myths at a young age because uh, i neither of my parents really were big into history. I had a my mom loves music so and voice and she was in uh, voiceover and um, my dad's a lawyer so unfortunately, I was not exposed to anything from them directly it was I had to seek out everything myself and how, <laughs> did how did I oh goodness um. You know, it's funny. I, I don't know what age or how young because I've always just loved storytelling. I've loved, it wouldn't, it, I don't think I necessarily started out with with like actual Greek or, or Roman mythology. I just, it was storytelling. And then when I got to be a little older, probably six or seven, I finally discovered, hey, actually this is this is mythology. And I just, I had a wild imagination. And then I think it was all finally put together when I got to sixth grade. I had an a, fabulous teacher who it was our ancient world year. So she did this really imaginative thing where I'm going to let you bring a bed sheet into class, make it into a toga, everyone's going to choose like a fake Greek name that you're going to use with your classmates. Uh, and then the, the way the classroom was set up was you had five tables that you could fit like five students at and uh, each table then became a different Greek city state. Uh, wow. And then we would have like inter-class competitions. Um, so it was really clever and brilliant. And uh, at the end of that year, I just said, Oh gosh, I-, I have to learn more. I have to study more if you read more about the ancient world. Um, and, and then I just, kept going. Uh, It was kind of self-study. And then you're an (laughs) autodidact. Yeah, exactly. And then I got (laughs) to college and I didn't know what classics was even then, but I knew anthropology and history were my closest shots. So I went to see the, the, the undergrad advisors for each one. I said, Hey, tell me where I'm going. Uh, So then I would sit and explain to them, this is what I like, this is what I'm good at. Tell me what I do. And they said, Oh, go, go to classics here. Here's the email for, for the advisor here, go have fun and uh, be great. And so I emailed him and fell into classics uh, right freshman year, and then could not have been happier. I, I stayed the course and, um, and here I am today. Uh, but it's definitely influenced everything I do in life. Um, I was really interested in like ancient political thought. And I felt so sad because I only scratched the surface of that. But, uh, when I graduated, I, I started, I went right into politics. So, you know, that's just another arm that you can, uh, use a classical background for, but I I would very much like to go back to, to grad school. If I I can say, I mean, I always recommend people
4: don't go straight to grad school. I
3: think it's super
4: important to do something out in the world so that you, I mean, it goes back to what I said. So, you know, what you're going for. It's not just, I'm good at this. I like to be in school but you have a sense of the world you're operating in. So that's great.
3: Yeah. And I, you know, I I don't know if I'm realistically ever going to be able to go to grad school for classics. I mean, that's a lot of languages that now I'm like, Oh no, I've got to, I've got to find a way to to learn. It's expensive, blah, blah, blah. But just in the immediate future, i found there's so many different ways that I can apply my background. And one of them was I love politics and I love Greece. So how do I, how do I combine them? And uh, I found a program uh, at the university of Athens and um, there I'm going to be able to study ethnic Greek nationalism. And so I'm really excited because I'm going to get to study sort of the the whole history of uh, Greece as a nation. So hopefully we're going to go back to the ancient times and see how nationalism for, for each city state essentially, and and how that sort of um, evolved through the years into into the modern iteration. So I'm just essentially combining the culture that I love, the people I love and the background that I've come from, but into a very practical, uh, useful ability of being able to sort of hopefully at the end of that, be able to really discuss nationalism. What is it? How do we, you know, how does it live? How does it survive? How has it changed through the years? So I'm really excited. I've, I've been able to sort of carve a, a spot for myself and, um, who knows after I get that master's hopefully, uh, in a year or two, uh, maybe, maybe I'll be convinced and, and find a way to, to get back into classics or keep going with, with what I'm doing, uh, and just bring classical elements to it. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm moving there. I sort of don't know what I'm doing at any moment. So I just sort of live day to day and say, okay, let's, let's wake up today and, uh, what can I, how can I infuse classics into my everyday life, into things that I work on, think about? But it's- I love
4: going through the the modern Greek material, which I came to very late. And it's, it should be taught. I mean, you know, we need to understand the the ways in which, you know, classics is the discipline formed. It's definitely very linked to nationalism. It's part of a larger story about nationalism, the humanities. And, and I think, you you know, in a way you may learn much more than you would going the traditional classics route and then you know you can you can find your way back to the text or as you say work with them as you want to work with them but you know there's more programs that are becoming more interdisciplinary i think chicago's program i mean ucla i think penn is, is pretty interdisciplinary like but that's to me you know for students with really broad interests or i always say broad interests who are of really theoretical interest and interest in reception you have to pick the right program because, you know, that you want to be in a place where you can really drill down on what you're most interested in learning. And that's really crucial. So.
3: Yeah. I I've always been a huge proponent for the more interdisciplinary aspect of classics. I know a lot of people would just say, no, no, no I, I think I prefer just going into it as a, as a field and then studying some strand within it. Um, and I've always been more in the uh, more cutting edge revolu- revolutionary aspect of well, what if I went into this modern program, but then just like most of my source material was the ancient material, so that I do get this hybrid of I'm using all the classical materials but applying it to uh, contemporary issues, mm-hmm. um, and that's usually where my focus tends to be. I'm always, always looking at the practical applicability, um, sort of aspect of classics, and that's that's just a huge part of what I what I spend my time also talking to other people about which is you know it is very important to study this stuff but as we're trying to pull this subject into the future I think that's not going to happen unless we also attach some element of okay how do we use it in contemporary you know life how do we put this in perspective for contemporary problems because obviously we don't face the same problems that the ancients did but I would argue we have a lot of very similar ones so um, you know why not study the past, okay, it's not the same thing, but I'm sure a lot of the solutions or the things you shouldn't do, we those are pretty important for us. Uh, just kind of like uh, as we were talking about earlier, the the evolution of medicine, right, and how we think about uh, medical ethics. Same issues, very different uh, technological systems, blah blah blah. Still very applicable. We should study them all together. I don't know why uh, we don't do that more. Um, yeah, but they're. Sometimes it you, just seems you, not yeah. to have appetite. Yeah. And, and I
4: think that's where the critical, you know, we need to do it critically. This is starting to come to the field. I mean, I was in a committee call earlier today, but like, we, if we want to talk about the relevance of classics, the kind of work you're doing is crucial because we can't be all sophisticated behind closed doors and then go and say, yes, study us. It's the foundations of Western civilization. I mean, as somebody who's written a lot on big concepts, I mean, I'm very aware of these narratives and I think they're not, the bigness of them is not wrong. they are complicated stories, but how we tell them and being critical about the history is in, we can't go on without that element. And so, you know, when what you're doing with the podcast, I think is, you know, really an example of, of building out the world you want to see, you wanted to create these conversations. you put a structure in place and, you know, it's really great. So congratulations.
3: Thank you. Yeah. I, you know, I, it, I never thought of myself as as somebody who would be attempting to tackle an issue as big as accessibility to the field. Um, and I never thought of myself particularly as someone who I, I would never call myself an expert in outreach, whatever that means, but um Yeah, I when when the opportunity presented myself, I saw I I saw it as a crucial opportunity to help the field out and those of us who are in it, just because we don't I don't know, I've always thought that classics as a field just does a terrible job of of talking about ourselves and, and do very little outreach to to other people and we don't really spend time talking about the practical uh, applicability of it, which is, you know, that that's fine, but uh, pe- people need to do it. So if I can contribute to that in any way, I, I like to. Absolutely. Uh, just because I, I've gotten into some friendly debates with people all the time about this is uh, when you see symbols from the ancient world, especially within medicine, uh, like the Caduceus and uh, the, the Rod of Asclepius, when you see in our modern culture the fact that on all of our ambulances they're using the wrong staff yeah, <laughs> does that bother you at all because it does i've learned to not let it bother me but just as someone who knows ancient symbols i see that and i'm like well that's wrong because that's what hermes uses and that's that's sending the wrong message you don't want him to ferry you to the underworld you don't want to die like why do why are we not using asclepius's rod
4: yeah I think we all have our own. Like I get really upset, and this is like a different thing. Um, like when people talk about the beginning of anatomy and with Vesalius as the beginning of modern medicine, so you find that a lot. That really irritates me because you have systematic human. I know it's not the same as a symbol, but it's like something that circulates and 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 I'm always like, no, it's not. It's it's. Ptolemaic Alexandria, like, you know, it's not ancient and modern. Like I get really upset at like certain ways of dividing up ancient and modern that bother me, or sometimes the ways Hippocrates is introduced as like, you know, the first physician will sometimes irritate me. Um, But yeah, it's, uh, it's funny. Like I remember um, Reginald Foster. So I took his Latin course many years ago in Rome. Do you know him? He's the guy who did spoken Latin at the Vatican and he passed away recently from covid i mean he was in his 80s but like i remember him telling this story of passing this guy with only was his parents you know he's like a college student like in in front of the pantheon and he's like pointing to the latin inscription and he's like we don't know what this says and reginald's like what some of us know what this says <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> we have this weird arcane knowledge that we could you know decipher your inscriptions and your symbols on your ambulances
3: (laughs) this is honestly it's it's why i love classicists so much because we we are the people with the weird skills where Nobody asked us for our opinion on a certain thing. If you see it on a building, on a poster, anything. And then we just go, hey, if you've ever wanted to meet someone with just like a really weird skill that most people would just be like, wait, what? Yeah. That's us. You know, hey, I can do that. I can do this. I have an Egyptologist friend who he always says my uh that his um his weird skill is just slap any picture of a coffin in front of his face and he'll tell you exactly what dynasty, what time period, almost right to the year. And I'm like, yeah you're right that's a weird skill that no one I know has like you know you show me a cough and I just go "Ooh, it's pretty that's a great skill um and yes yeah, so at the end of each podcast episode um I ask every guest to read Shelley's version of Ozymandias. And uh, yeah, after you read it, you know, you don't have to. I'm not expecting you to just sort of have a whole thing on it. Just uh, I always like to get just a snapshot in time of your quick thoughts of okay, good. (laughs) Does it speak to you? You know, what does this poem mean? You know, what are the central themes?
2: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher.
4: the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, see mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. You know, it's funny. Cause I'm teaching my medicine. Well, so I'm not teaching my medicine class. I'm teaching my nature class. And, um, And I was thinking we were talking about Francesca Rockberg's book, Before Nature and cuneiform, she talked about cuneiform culture. And cuneiform culture is two millennia, two millennia, you know, the last two millennia BCE. Um, And I think we're just this, you know, even in imperial time, we're so, we're such a small sliver, the American empire. And I do think that it can be, you know, it's a cliche, obviously, it's a cliche that it's humbling, but like the time scales that we're operating within right now feel particularly compressed, because we're living through the pandemic, it's very moment to moment, you know, um, it seems like we're in this state of acute crisis, and it feels like apocalyptic, it feels like, you know, the end of this, you know, climate change, and systemic collapse, and societal collapse. And, and I think that, you know, somehow, recognizing that huge span of time that you're operating within. It's not just humbling. I mean, I was talking earlier about the problem with the pandemic right now is that there's so much harm that's become visible and you want to fix it. You know, you want to fix it and um, we want people to fix it. And particularly people in power, you know, being at a place like Princeton, you, you feel like you need to do everything you can to try to address problems of the institution, to use the power you have to change the world and, Um, but we're exhausted. And, you know, and I think that that kind of recognition that I was talking about earlier about caregiving work, um, and the recognition that we're, there's a lot of structural harm made by humans who are pretty fucked up creatures, like, and we always have been, and the heroism associated with saving it all, you know, you can deal with the magnitude of the crises without um, devaluing the work you do locally, I think, to care for those things. And it's that kind of scaling down, which I think is important right now.
3: Yeah. I mean, the poem is very short, obviously it's, it's not any, it's not anything like Homer, uh, of course. Um, but I think it, it is nice because it, it is a very short commentary. Yeah. On power on, I think it's a memento Mori personally, but the, the working definition that I like to go off of is that it's, um, it's a look at human hubris along with the ephemeral nature of power, all power. Um, and if I consider it that way, there's so many different iterations that it could take uh, that come to my mind just in terms of what kind of things do we see in modern day right now that think they're so great that in a thousand years, who knows what will happen to that them. Um, So kind of with that working definition, the, the very last question that I ask every guest, because I love the difference in answers and opinions that I get. If we consider the poem to be commentary on power and hubris, Is there anything in our modern society today, right now, that is like a modern Ozymandias? Is there such a thing as a modern Ozymandias? It's funny
4: because the first answer that came to mind is maybe symptomatic of what I was saying earlier. I mean, I was thinking of like, you know, Mar-a-Lago or something like that, or some Trumpian sign. And, And then I thought, you know, that's the scale problem we have is like, we have these big crises, but we don't have kings in the same way, you know, I mean, we do, but, but they seem so, I mean, Trump was, he comes to mind because he was a perversion of a culture, which is, you know, should be avowedly democratic. And so the kind of disconnect between, you know, the kind of funniness of thinking of him, but also there's something so awful about it, you know, that like, it feels like the fact that the disanalogy and the analogy both point to the real fear of that Trump posed to democracy and and an American empire, which won't be built on forms of white nationalism. But then, you know, um, he posed a fear, but then also, you know, it's, it's, he's so small. It's not a good answer. I can't think of it. Maybe the Hollywood sign.
3: That's totally possible. I mean, I, I, there is no one answer and there is no, answer that's better than the other, which is something that I was shocked to learn that that's actually kind of the point of asking the question, which is there is no great answer. Um, when I first started asking the question, I thought, okay, I'm probably going to get a lot of the same answers and it's, we're going to see a theme here. No, because every answer is so different. Um, one of my favorites, uh, was a former professor of mine at Mizzou who I, uh, interviewed and he, he said, uh, his example was, a. Uh, a casino, an old casino in Atlantic City. We thought those would last forever. Uh, they're all abandoned now. They're just sort of sitting there chilling, just gone. Uh, somebody, I think somebody said capitalism. Somebody said technology. Um, so yeah, it could be a million things. Uh, it's just uh, a really sort of meta question that I like to, to yeah. ask because it's going to be so different for everyone. Um, and it's a reflection of people's own opinions uh, what they study how they study it so that's kind of why i've started asking yeah,
4: and the fluidity i mean particularly right now around power and autocratic power you know it was trump 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 and now it's not you know and and that it's, it's a register problem right like we didn't know how to gauge what he represented and i think we still don't
3: yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, the simple answer would be, oh, yeah, well, Ozymandias, the poem was about a man. So obviously I should choose a human. So I think uh, I was initially expecting, I will say I was initially expecting a lot of Trump and Putin's and, and things like that. But the majority of answers actually have not been people, um, which. Yeah. It's like
4: the Hollywood sign, you know, when you step back and you think it's a hard question.
3: Yeah. But thank you for, for agreeing to join me uh, at the end of your yeah, day. I'm glad we a... finally managed to do it.
4: And, and, you know, I thought I can't put you off again. And, and I thought, oh, I'll only last an hour. But I'm quite wordy,
0: and I'm glad to hear a little bit about what brought you to the project. Trireme Transit is now departing Ancient Odyssey. Next stop is Present Ponderings. I met a traveler from an antique land who said...